Section 10 The Story of Jesuk Conclusion Of the Faith of Men This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio, July 2007 The Story of Jesuk Conclusion By Jack London Jesuk moved into her grand log house and dreamed away three golden summer months. Then came the autumn, post-haste before the downrush of winter. The air grew thin and sharp, the days thin and short. The river ran sluggishly, and skin ice formed in the quiet eddies. All migratory life departed south, and silence fell upon the land. The first snow flurries came, and the last homing steamboat bucked desperately into the running mush ice. Then came the hard ice, solid cakes and sheets, till the Yukon ran level with its banks. And when all this ceased, the river stood still, and the blinking days lost themselves in the darkness. John Thompson, the new agent, laughed. But Jesuk had faith in the mischances of sea and river. Neil Bonner might be frozen anywhere between Chilkoot Pass and St. Michael's, for the last travelers of the year are always caught by the ice when they exchange boat for sled and dash on through the long hours behind the flying dogs. But no flying dogs came up the trail, nor down the trail, to Twenty Mile. And John Thompson told Jesuk, with a certain gladness ill-concealed, that Bonner would never come back again. Also, and brutally, he suggested his own eligibility. Jesuk laughed in his face and went back to her grand log-house. But when Minwitter came... When hopes die down and life is at its lowest ebb, Jesuk found she had no credit at the store. This was Thompson's doing, and he rubbed his hands and walked up and down, and came to his door and looked up at Jesuk's house and waited. And he continued to wait. She sold her dog team to a party of miners and paid cash for her food. And when Thompson refused to honor even her coin, Toyette Indians made her purchases and sledded them up to her house in the dark. In February, the first post came in over the ice, and John Thompson read in the society column of a five-months-old paper of the marriage of Neil Bonner and Kitty Sharon. Jesuk held the door ajar and him outside while he imparted the information, and when he had done, laughed pridefully and did not believe. In March, and all alone, she gave birth to a man-child, a brave bit of new life at which she marveled. And at that hour, a year later, Neil Bonner sat by another bed, marveling at another bit of new life that had fared into the world. The snow went off the ground and the ice broke out of the Yukon. The sun journeyed north and journeyed south again. And the money from the being spent, Jesuk went back to her own people. Oshish, a shrewd hunter, proposed to kill the meat for her and her babe and catch all the salmon if she would marry him. And Amago and Hayo and Wainuch, husky young hunters, all made similar proposals. But she elected to live alone and seek her own meat and flesh. She sewed moccasins and parkas and mittens, warm, serviceable things, and pleasing to the eye, withal, what of the ornamental hair tufts and beadwork. These she sold to the miners, who were drifting faster into the land each year. And not only did she win food that was good and plentiful, but she laid money by and one day took passage on the Yukon Bell down the river. 
At St. Michael's she washed dishes in the kitchen of the post. The servants of the company wondered at the remarkable woman with the remarkable child, though they asked no questions, and she vouchsafed nothing. But just before the Bering Sea closed in for the year, she bought a passage south on a strayed sealing schooner. That winter she cooked for Captain Markham's household at Unalaska, and in the spring continued south to Sitka on a whiskey sloop. Later on appeared at Michalata, which is near to St. Mary's at the end of the Panhandle, where she worked in the cannery through the salmon season. When autumn came, and the Siwash fishermen prepared to return to Puget Sound, she embarked with a couple of families in a big cedar canoe, and with them she threaded the hazardous chaos of the Alaskan and Canadian coasts till the Straits of Juan de Fuca were passed, and she led her boy by the hand up the hard pave of Seattle. There she met Sandy McPherson on a windy corner, very much surprised, and, when he had heard her story, very wroth. Not so wroth as he might have been had he known of Kitty Sharon, but of her Jesuk breathed not a word, for she had never believed. Sandy, who read commonplace and sordid desertion into the circumstance, strove to dissuade her from her trip to San Francisco, where Neil Bonner was supposed to live when he was at home. And having striven, he made her comfortable, bought her tickets, and saw her off, the while smiling in her face and muttering, damn shame, into his beard. With roar and rumble, through daylight and dark, swaying and lurching between the dawns, soaring into winter snows and sinking into summer valleys, skirting depths, leaping chasms, piercing mountains, Jesuk and her boy were hurled south. But she had no fear of the iron stallion, nor was she stunned by the masterful civilization of Neil Bonner's people. It seemed, rather, that she saw with greater clearness the wonder that a man of such godlike race had held her in his arms. The screaming medley of San Francisco, with its restless shipping, belching factories, and thundering traffics, did not confuse her. Instead, she comprehended swiftly the pitiful sordidness of Twenty Mile and the Skins Lodge Toyot village. And she looked down at the boy that clutched her hand and wondered that she had borne him by such a man. She paid the hack-driver five pieces and went up the stone steps of Neil Bonner's front door. A slant-eyed Japanese parlayed with her for a fruitless space then led her inside and disappeared. She remained in the hall, which to her simple fancy seemed to be the guest-room, the show-place wherein were arrayed all the household treasures with the frank purpose of parade and dazzlement. The walls and ceilings were of oiled and panelled redwood. The floor was more glassy than glare-ice, and she sought standing-place on one of the great skins that gave a sense of security to the polished surface. A huge fireplace, an extravagant fireplace, she deemed it, yawned in the farther wall. A flood of light, mellowed by stained glass, fell across the room, and from the far end came the white gleam of a marble figure. This much she saw, and more, when the slant-eyed servant led the way past another room, of which she caught a fleeting glance, and into a third, both of which dimmed the brave show of the entrance hall. And to her eyes the great house seemed to hold out the promise of endless similar rooms. There was such length and breadth to them, and the ceilings were so far away. For the first time since her advent into the white man's civilization, a feeling of awe laid hold of her. Neil, her Neil, lived in this house, breathed the air of it, and lay down at night and slept. It was beautiful, all that she saw, and it pleased her. But she felt, also, the wisdom and mastery behind. It was the concrete expression of power in terms of beauty, and it was the power that she unerringly divined. And then came a woman queenly tall, crowned with a glory of hair that was like a golden sun. 
She seemed to come toward Jizuk as a ripple of music across still water, her sweeping garment itself a song, her body playing rhythmically beneath. Jizuk herself was a man-compeller. There were Ochich and Imago and Hayo and Wainuch, to say nothing of Neil Bonner and John Thompson and other white men that had looked upon her and felt her power. But she gazed upon the wide blue eyes and rose-white skin of this woman that advanced to meet her, and she measured her with a woman's eyes looking through a man's eyes, and as a man-compeller she felt herself diminish and grow insignificant before this radiant and flashing creature. "'You wish to see my husband?' the woman asked. And Jizuk gasped at the liquid silver of voice that had never sounded harsh cries at snarling wolf-dogs, nor molded itself to guttural speech, nor toughened in storm and frost and camp smoke. "'No,' Jizuk answered slowly and gropingly, in order she might do justice to her English. "'I came to see Neil Bonner.' "'He is my husband,' the woman laughed. "'Then it was true.' John Thompson had not lied that bleak February day when she laughed pridefully and shut the door in his face. As once she had thrown Amos Pentley across her knee and ripped her knife into the air, so now she felt impelled to spring upon this woman and bear her back and down and tear the life out of her fair body. But Jizuk was thinking quickly and gave no sign, and Kitty Bonner little dreamed how intimately she had for an instant been related with sudden death. Jizuk nodded her head that she understood and Kitty Bonner explained that Neil was expected at any moment. Then they sat down on ridiculously comfortable chairs, and Kitty sought to entertain her strange visitor, and Jizuk strove to help her. "'You knew my husband in the North?' Kitty asked once. "'Sure. I wash him clothes,' Jizuk had answered, her English abruptly beginning to grow atrocious. "'And this is your boy? I have a little girl.' Kitty caused her daughter to be brought, and while the children, after the manner, struck an acquaintance, the mothers indulged in the talk of mothers and drank tea from cups so fragile that Jizuk feared lest hers should crumble to pieces beneath her fingers. Never had she seen such cups so delicate and dainty. In her mind she compared them with the woman who poured the tea, and there uprose in contrast the gourds and pannikins of the Toyat village and the clumsy mugs of Twenty Mile to which she likened herself and in such fashion and such terms the problem presented itself. She was beaten. There was a woman, other than herself, better fitted to bear and upbring Neil Bonner's children. Just as his people exceeded her people, so did his womankind exceed her. They were the man-compellers, as their men were the world-compellers. She looked at the rose-white tenderness of Kitty Bonner's skin and remembered the sunbeat on her own face. Likewise she looked from the brown hand to white, the one work-worn and hardened by whip-handle and paddle, the other as guiltless of toil and as soft as a newborn babe's. And for all the obvious softness and apparent weakness, Jizuk looked into the blue eyes and saw the mastery she had seen in Neil Bonner's eyes, and in the eyes of Neil Bonner's people. "'Why, it's Jizuk,' Neil Bonner said when he entered." He said it calmly, with even a ring of joyful cordiality, coming over to her and shaking both her hands, but looking into her eyes with a worry in his own that she understood. "'Hello, Neil,' she said. "'You look much good.' "'Fine, fine, Jizuk,' he answered heartily, though secretly studying Kitty for some sign of what had passed between the two. Yet he knew his wife too well to expect, even though the worst had passed, such a sign. 
"'Well, I can't say how glad I am to see you,' he went on. "'What's happened? Did you strike a mine? And when did you get in?' "'Oh, uh, I get in today,' she replied, her voice instinctively seeking its guttural parts. "'I no strike it, Neil. You know Captain Markham on Alaska. I cook his house long time. No spend money. By and by plenty. Pretty good, I think, go down and see white man's land. Very fine, white man's land. Very fine,' she added." Her English puzzled him, for Sandy and he had sought constantly to better her speech, and she had proved an apt pupil. Now it seemed she had sunk back into her race. Her face was guileless, stolidly guileless, giving no clue. Kitty's untroubled brow likewise baffled him. What had happened? How much had been said, and how much guessed? While he wrestled with these questions, and while Jeezuck wrestled with her problem, Never had he looked so wonderful and great. A silence fell. "'To think that you knew my husband in Alaska,' Kitty said softly. "'Knew him?' Jeeza could not forbear a glance at the boy she had borne him, and his eyes followed her mechanically to the window where played the two children. An iron hand seemed to tighten across his forehead. His knees went weak and his heart leaped up and pounded like a fist against his breast. His boy! He had never dreamed it!' Little Kitty Bonner, fairy-like in gauzy lawn, with pinkest of cheeks and bluest of dancing eyes, arms outstretched and lips puckered in invitation, was striving to kiss the boy. And the boy, lean and lithe, sun-beaten and brown, skin-clad and hair-fringed and hair-tufted and mucklucks that showed the wear of the sea and rough work, coolly withstood her advances, his body straight and stiff, with the peculiar erectness common to children of savage people. A stranger in a strange land, Unabashed and unafraid, he appeared more like an untamed animal, silent and watchful, his black eyes flashing from face to face, quiet so long as quiet endured, but prepared to spring and fight and tear and scratch for life at the first sign of danger. The contrast between boy and girl was striking, but not pitiful. There was too much strength in the boy for that, waif that he was of the generations of Spack, Spike O'Brien, and Bonner, and his features— clean-cut as cameo and almost classic in their severity. There were the power and achievement of his father and his grandfather, and the one known as the Big Fat, who was captured by the Sea People and had escaped to Kamchatka. Neil Bonner fought his emotion down, swallowed it down, and choked over it, though his face smiled with good humor and the joy with which one meets a friend. "'Your boy, eh, Jizak? he said. And then, turning to Kitty, "'Handsome fellow,' He'll do something with those two hands of his in this our world. Kitty nodded concurrence. What is your name, she asked. The young savage flashed his quick eyes upon her and dwelt over her for a space, seeking out, as it were, the motive beneath the question. Neil, he answered deliberately, when the scrutiny had satisfied him. Injun talk, Jizuk interposed, glibly manufacturing languages on the spur of the moment. Him engine talk. Neil, all the same. Cracker. Him baby. Him like cracker. Him cry for cracker. Him say, Neil, Neil, all the time. Neil. Then I say that um name. So um name all time Neil. Never did a sound more blessed fall upon Neil Bonner's ear than that lie from Jesus' lips. It was the cue, and he knew there was a reason for Kitty's untroubled brow. And his father, Kitty asked? He must be a fine man. Oh, well, yes, was the reply. Um, father, fine man, sure. 
Did you know him, Neil? queried Kitty. Know him? Most intimately, Neil answered, and harked back to dreary twenty mile, and the man alone in the silence with his thoughts. And here might well end the story of Jesuk, but for the crown she put upon her renunciation. When she returned to the north to dwell in her grand log house, John Thompson found that the PC company could make a shift somehow to carry on its business without his aid. Also, the new agent and the succeeding agents received instructions that the woman G's Uck should be given whatsoever goods and grub she desired, in whatsoever quantity she ordered, and that no charge should be placed upon the books. Further, the company paid yearly to the woman G's Uck a pension of $5,000. When he had attained suitable age, Father Champro laid hands upon the boy, and the time was not long when Jesuk received letters regularly from the Jesuit College in Maryland. Later on these letters came from Italy, and still later from France, and in the end there returned to Alaska one Father Neil, a man mighty for good in the land, who loved his mother, and who ultimately went into a wider field and rose to high authority in that order. Jesuk was a young woman when she went back into the north and men still looked upon her and yearned. But she lived straight, and no breath was ever raised saved in commendation. She stayed for a while with the good sisters at Holy Cross, where she learned to read and write, and became versed in practical medicine and surgery. After that, she returned to her grand log house and gathered about her the young girls of the Toyat village, to show them the way of their feet in the world. It is neither Protestant nor Catholic, this school in the house built by Neil Bonner for Jesuk, his wife. But the missionaries of all the sects look upon it with equal favor. The latch string is always out, and tired prospectors and trail-weary men turn aside from the flowing river, or frozen trail, to rest there for a space, and be warmed by her fire. And, down in the States, Kitty Bonner is pleased at the interest her husband takes in Alaskan education, and the large sums he devotes to that purpose. And, though she often smiles and chaffs, deep down and secretly she is but the prouder of him. End The Story of Jesuk End The Faith of Men by Jack London